We'd all love to spend more time outside, see more birds, have more fun, connect with friendly people. Our happiness depends on it, but modern life pushes us away from nature. Enter Berta. Berta is the new free app that boosts your bird watching experience, fun birding challenges, leaderboards, and cool badges turn sing bird life into a game. And better still, all the sightings go to help bird conservation. Come bird with Berta. Sign up today. It's free. You can find Berta, B-I-R-D-A, on all app stores. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It is the end of the month, so I want to get to the This Month of Birding panel. But first, a bit of news. I'm going to be speaking at the Manizales Bird Fair in Manizales, Colombia, the weekend of November 10th. I don't have my specific schedule yet, but if you're going to be down there or you're thinking about going down there, please stop by and say hello. I'd love to meet any listeners who are in the area. Suffice it to say, I am looking forward to getting down there again and seeing Toucan Barbets, fingers crossed. Also, several other ABA staff members are going to be at the Rio Grande Valley Burning Festival in Harlingen, Texas, that same week. There will be a trade show where you can go and find the ABA booth and say hello to all the folks there. Please do so. I won't be there, but there'll still be plenty of good ABA fun to be had at the Rio Grande Valley Festival. Let's get to the program itself. It's a doozy. We've got Martha Harbison, Miko Jimenez, and Dexter Patterson to talk about heat islands, birding at night, and the spookiest bird species, among other things, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of October 2023. We don't get to talk about Hawaii enough in this spot, as the mid-Pacific archipelago doesn't get a ton of land bird vagrants. October is the peak for those they do get, though. In that vein, a white wagtail photographed on Midway Atoll is a first for the Hawaiian Islands, though not the state of Hawaii, as Midway is technically a U.S. territory and not part of the state. It's complicated, but the identification of the bird is not. Michigan also boasts a first this week, a black-chinned hummingbird visiting a feeder in Keweenaw County. Black-chinned is one of the more commonly occurring western vagrant hummingbirds in the east, and I, for one, was surprised that Michigan hadn't recorded one yet. I don't think anyone expected Michigan to add American flamingo before black-chinned hummingbird, but that's the kind of year it has been. And in Alabama, a good candidate for the state's first record of western wood peewee was photographed and, perhaps more importantly, recorded on Dauphin Island. This is the second western wood peewee representing a first record in the east in as many weeks after one in Pennsylvania, meaning that it is a good bird for birders to be on the lookout for. Other noteworthy sightings around the ABA area, the ABA's fourth record of song thrush was seen on St. Paul Island in western Alaska. The Atlantic Basin's fourth record of wedge-tailed shearwater was seen off Port Aransas, Texas, where it represents a Texas second. And an ABA code for Northern Jacana was photographed in Phoenix, Arizona this week. Those are the highlights for the week. But for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. It's the last week in October, and so it's time for This Month in Birding, our monthly roundtable discussion that brings no tricks, only treats, to this month's birdie discussion. We have quite the lineup this time. Let's introduce them, shall we? An editor for the National Audubon Society, science writer, and a galvatross. It's Martha Harvison. Welcome, Martha. Thank you. It's great to have you here. An aero, eco, bio enthusiast and bird researcher based currently out of Colorado State University. It is Miko Jimenez. Welcome back, Miko. 
Thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me. Of course. And the Wisco Birder, co-founder of the BIPOC Birding Club of Wisconsin and recent American Flamingo Enthusiast. Here again <laughs> is Dexter Patterson. Hi, Dexter. What's up, Nate? It's great to have all three of you here. Um, we have a lot to talk about, so please forgive me for starting on uh, something of a down note. Uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently announced that it was removing 23 species from the endangered species list, which should normally be cause for celebration, but isn't this time around because uh, those species are extinct. Uh, 10 of the species on the list are birds, and of those 10, eight are from Hawaii. Hawaii, sadly, meeting its reputation as the extinction capital of the world. Four of those species are from Kauai, it, like only Kauai, three from Maui, and one from Molokai. Pretty wild how big Kauai uh, looms as a bird extinction hotspot. Uh, the other two are bridled wide-eye of Guam and Bachman's warbler, which breeds in the southeast United States, or bred, I should say, in the southeast United States and wintered its thought in Cuba. Sad news, of course. Uh, none of them are particularly surprising. It has been decades since most of those birds were last confirmed. I don't know about you. This this de this decision feels sort of administrative as much as anything. I don't believe that there's anyone out there who thinks that any of these species are still present. It is not the case with one of the notable emissions from this list. The ivory-billed woodpecker is both extinct and the subject of something of a cottage industry that maintains its continued presence. Uh, there were some videos taken in Louisiana over the course of several months that were purported to be this species. Um, and that uncertainty caused the Fish and Wildlife Service to leave it off this list. Uh, nonetheless, a sad reminder of the trials of many bird species, particularly in Hawaii, and the hope that remains for some of those beleaguered species. I don't have too much to, to add. I, I assume that everybody is uh, fairly um, sad. <laughs> These birds are officially extinct, even though it was something that we always sort of knew. It was a sad list to read. I expected yeah. a couple of them on there, but then mm -hmm. I was like, oh, these are actually birds that uh, there were a couple of them that were new, new to me or I'd only yeah. seen once. And I was like, oh, man, that's it's kind of a kick in the pants there. It seems to be the case with a lot of those Hawaiian birds. You like learn of their existence and then learn of their extinction and within like five minutes. Yeah. Sadly. <laughs> Did you say uh, two others were in Guam? Or is it just one other? Guam? One was in Guam, the bridled white eye. Uh, Guam, of course, a, a U.S. Uh, colony, U.S. protectorate. And so under the auspices of the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Though. So there, I think there were a few other Guam species on the list or Marianas Island species because all those Pacific islands are are tough with in terms of extinctions. Yeah, exactly. Like the, it seems that beyond the scope of just Hawaii, like the Pacific Islands being hit with all those extinctions, you know, that that's a, such a bummer. Yeah. A yeah. Loss. It's it's a lot of the same things that are causing the problems, too. It's invasive yeah. species. It's um, because uh, it's funny in some of those places in Hawaii in particular, some of the habitat, uh, especially in the high elevations, are actually pretty good. Like the, the Ohia trees are still there. It's just that once you get above a certain elevation, the mosquitoes are there, too. And, you know, it's the it's the avian malaria the vector of which is the the those mosquitoes that has caused so many bird extinctions in Hawaii. And I, I should point out that the sterile mosquito plan that we've heard about for for several years, where they you know they put the genetically modified mosquitoes, and hopefully that will you know draw down the mosquito population. That's going into practice now, like this fall. They're they're doing it. So sad that all these birds are on this list, uh, officially extinct. But you know, hope perhaps. Maybe a little sliver of hope remains for some of the ones that are that are still there. They're still around. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. 
I remember watching uh, the Hawaii episode of Extraordinary Birder. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christian, with Christian Cooper. Mm-hmm. And they really did a good job of talking about, you know, how these Hawaiian species are at risk and mm-hmm. how we're losing birds that only exist there. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't think about like once they're gone, they're gone. Like we're, yeah. we're never going to see them again. They're only in Hawaii. I've never been there. I hope mm-hmm. to get there. Um, one of these days, maybe my, my birding passion will get me there someday. Um, but I remember just watching that episode and just being blown away and also being inspired by how the local people there love their birds. Yeah. You know, how it's part of their culture. I thought that was really cool about how they frame that episode um, in general, uh, the connection the birds have to the to the people there. And I just thought that yeah. was just beautiful. Yeah, that's really, uh, you know, represented in some of the names that we see of those birds. So, so many Hawaiian species have that continue to have the, the Hawaiian names attached to them. There's some really fantastic ones, unfortunately, that are that are gone, I like that Po'o'uli, which is a cool-looking black-masked honey creeper, and uh, the Nukapu'u. I mean, they're, they're, there's a lot of them that are still, you know, hanging on. And the more people we bring in to that story and let people know that, that, that story, then I think it's going to be better for those birds. I hope so. Any thoughts on the ivory-billed woodpecker? <laughs> I don't have a ton to say on it other than <laughs> I, it feels like they're just kicking the can down the road at this point. <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore, folks. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah I don't know if we can say anything that hasn't been said like, <laughs> on this podcast, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure we've talked about it in the past. Uh, Bachman's Warbler, I just, I just um, you know, one thing to say about that is I've actually, I live in the Carolinas and I've actually met people that have seen Bachman's warbler. And that was a really wild experience to hear from South Carolina birders that were some of the last people to see it in the 1980s before that one just kind of stopped showing up around Charleston. Um, yeah, I mean, it's sobering that a lot of these things are in living memory. I don't know. You want to have a Bachman's warbler story? We can move on uh, now that we've sort of <laughs> poured one out for our, for our birds uh, that we've lost. Um, hopefully this list, uh, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of hope that the list will not continue to, we'll, we'll see a lot of, you know, sad lists like this in the future. But, um, you know, the more people recognize that this is something that's happening, the more we can get people on board with coming up with a solution. I hope, I hope, I hope. Anyway, shall we move on to the next story? So, Nate, you sent me a couple articles that I found fascinating. Great. Um, yeah, I'm glad you didn't find them boring. So, no, like, I, I was honest. <laughs> I was like, okay, this, this, is, this is good stuff. So, there were two in particular. Uh, the one is kind of talking about urban heat islands, and then also another one exploring the impact of redlining and both of them having an impact on bird diversity. So I kind of started nerding out a little bit on this um, as, you know, the co-founder of the BIPOC Birding Club of Wisconsin, equity, diversity. Uh, it was kind of speaking. It was pulling on my heartstrings a little bit. I'll, I will say that. Um, so I'm really, really, really uh, happy to be able to talk about this on American Birding Podcast. And let's just talk. First of all, let's talk about these urban heat. Right. And this this impact on bird diversity with this focus on this term called urban heat island effect, uh, which is basically it's just about all these buildings that that retain heat and all these paved areas that you see in these in these urban areas. And what it's doing is it's just heating up. Right. And the birds don't like it. 
And it talks about, it's called uh, As City Heat Rises, Bird Diversity Declines by Pat Leonard. So if anybody's out there and you want to check it out, it's from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I know Nate's going to probably throw it in the show notes oh, yeah. um, so people can check it out. But but check it out. And they really start mentioning the shocking findings from a study that they that, that they did in over 300 Chinese cities. It was like 336 or something like that. Uh, um, all these Chinese cities. But it's not just something that's impacting China. So I just want to just say that this is just where the study was done. And it really does show this correlation between these urban environments heating up and these implications for bird diversity. So when we start seeing this phenomenon, they really thought like, okay, what about non-breeding seasons? Like we're in that now, right? And it's cooler everywhere. And what they found was like, even during the non-breeding seasons, these birds were going to these suburban areas and leaving the city, um, even though it's like cooler in general. So they not only prefer the cooler temps, but they move to these suburban areas. And then initially the researchers thought that it'd be different, right? It kind of challenged their their premise. Like they went into this thinking, oh, it probably would be during the breeding season only and not during a non-breeding season. And that was not the case. So I just found that fascinating um, when we think about climate change, which is a very top of mind topic. And we're thinking about bird diversity. I don't know about you all. We're seeing birds and their, their ranges expanding like crazy. I can remember 10, 15 years ago in Wisconsin, we weren't seeing American white pelicans. They mm-hmm. freaking breed here now. They're all right? Like I can go yep. to a lake right five, 10 minutes from my house and I can see 300 pelicans, right? So we, this, it's just a fascinating discussion to think about climate change, you know, not only like in cities, but as a whole. And I don't know, what are your, all, what are your thoughts on this, on this crazy um, study. I just, uh, it's not something that I ever thought of urban heat islands and it impacting bird diversity. Yeah. I thought it was really great, especially taken in conjunction with the, uh, the Los Angeles study about redlining and how the effects of redlining continue to have impacts on bird diversity, because those two things like feel very much of a, of a piece, right? Because we're talking, when we're talking about redlining, we're talking about primarily black and non-white neighborhoods that aren't as green as as other neighborhoods and you know when you're talking about the effects of urban heat islands then those are the places they're going to see that effect multiplied and then you know they're getting fewer birds so those those two issues it goes to show that the decisions that we make uh the government decisions that we make the the legislative decisions that we make do have impacts on bird diversity in ways that we wouldn't necessarily expect them redlining too is is something that really uh hits at home for me because if you look at the most segregated cities in America, Milwaukee, mm-hmm. Wisconsin is number one. Oh, yeah. Right. It's one of the most segregated cities in the entire country. Right. Top of the list, mostly every year. And I think about me growing up and spending time in urban, you know, while I'm spending time with my dad in Memphis, Tennessee, in the middle of what you might call impoverished areas. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you think about I don't see trees, yep, right? That exactly that right. article, yeah. Nate, talks about the lack of tree canopy, mm-hmm. right? And, and 
that is real, right? You don't see green spaces. You don't see tree canopies. So what does that do? That means you're going to get house sparrows, <laughs> maybe some doves here and there, yeah. right? Like you're not going to get the warblers coming through. You're not going to have the fancy woodpeckers or anything mm-hmm. like that. So you, the, what you see from a bird perspective is going to be so limited. And it makes me think about what does that do to the little kid? Yeah. What does that do to the people that live there? Because if you're not seeing something, if something's not a part of your life, how do you care about it? How do you develop a love for it? How do you develop this passion to want to like save it or protect it? Um, because you don't see it. It's not a part of your life. Mm-hmm. And so many people in these environments grow up thinking that nature is not for them. Birds are not for them. Animals are not for them. And like, to me, that is devastating, you know, because it's like, it's for everybody. It's for all of us. And these practices, Nate, that redlining, the banks did that back in 1930. Yeah, it was a Great Depression era policy. Back in 1930 (laughs) in L.A. And the people are still dealing with it today. Right. right. The banks looked around and said, oh, there's a non-white neighborhood that is going to be considered hazardous. So they dried a a red line around it. For those of you don't know what that is. okay. Mm -hmm. And then all the other neighborhoods that were white neighborhoods got green line. Mm -hmm. And it's funny that they call it green line because they get all the trees. They (laughs) get all the green spaces, all the money, the investments. Right. So not only do they not get the green spaces, you can actually look at it in in that article. They actually talk talk about the median incomes in all these places. And the median incomes are directly correlated with how much the percentage of tree canopy is in those locations. And it is insane. Yeah. And even further, the number of birds that you see in those places. Yeah. Yeah. I would say there was a study a few years ago that looked at number of blue jays and median income. Just blue jays. Yeah, blue jays in particular. Huh. And it's like, and it showed that there was a there was a direct correlation between median income of the neighborhood and the number of blue jays well, because of they the like number oak of trees. trees. And oak trees need to be big, and yep. especially when they're fruiting. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's something that we see also like in the broader context of urban ecology literature, we see it across a lot of different taxonomic groups. We see it across plants, we see it across mammals, where there's this kind of bump in uh, species richness, particularly in these suburban areas. And to kind of further beyond the policy, uh, you know, of redlining in the 30s, then we also have this white flight in the 50s and 60s. So Mm -hmm. we, like, in addition to the policies, we have people kind of flocking to the flocking i'm going to use that for oh my god but leaving using that verb. i see what you did there <laughs> <laughs> no so it's like it's this continuation uh like a social process that in many ways i guess uh, a result of those policies but it's a continuation of that effect um and we see that in the, these ecosystems you know across a lot of urban ecology literature where we see this, again, this kind of bump in species richness in those suburbs because they've been disproportionately invested in. Yeah. You can see it though, like just traveling, right? When I'm going birding, like I usually have to go outside of the city to go see the good stuff. Yeah, for sure. Like it's not that hard to like see. Yeah. You can travel all over the country and kind of see this taking place. I even see it in my own personal life from where I bought a house in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. We have a little small lake in the neighborhood. We have trees everywhere. It's like, shoot, I just saw an osprey like last month. You know what I mean? I got white-throated sparrows and I had uh, double-crested cormorants on the lake and things like that. I never saw that growing up. Mm -hmm. Never. 
I might see a, a Robin once in a blue moon and would freak out if a Cardinal showed up. You know what I mean? Like it was just like, just from growing up as a kid to seeing where I am now as an adult, my personal experience of living in poverty to now, you know, being a more middle class, living in a in a pretty nice neighborhood, I see the difference and, and it's mind blowing. I have a green space in front of my house, you know, so I just it kind of blows me away. Uh, but also, I really do like listeners. I want you all to think about it like. We really got to try to make nature as a whole more inclusive, you know, and, and it's really important to make not only nature, but birds and these green spaces accessible to everybody, no matter your socioeconomic background. Like it's not your fault that you're poor um, and you shouldn't have to suffer for that. You know, you're already kind of living in certain circumstances that usually when you're poor, there's a lot of other things that you're worried about as well outside of birds and, and trees and green spaces. But there's also a correlation that birds and trees bring down anxiety. That's that exactly right. I was better. Like this, this stuff is real. Um, so if we want to start to heal people, I think an easy way to invest in some of these neighborhoods is to clean them up, plant some trees, make sure the waterways are okay. Um, you start hearing birds and, and the air is feeling a little bit cleaner. I don't know. It does something to a person. It does. A nice little walkway next to a, you know, a reedy creek or a, a pond. That's good for you. It's good for every part of you. Yeah, and yes. I, I agree. And I would just love to, Dexter, you were, you were, you mentioned this, but I want to just put a really fine point on it is that when we think about making the outdoors accessible, we need to bring green space to people and not expect them to to get out somewhere because Mm -hmm. you know a lot of the people that are starved for green space also work in two jobs they don't have the access to they don't have a car so i think that there's a lot of expectation out there that's like well we'll just like build a bus line or something it's like no invest in city parks yeah invest in good hydrology um, I live in a neighborhood that was redlined in the thirties and I almost have no, I have almost no trees around me. Um, mm-hmm. whereas I can go two miles to the South and I'm just like, well, look at all these, like, you know, big, you know, everyone's got their woodpeckers. I'm like, I don't got no woodpeckers <laughs> in my neighborhood. Um, and so I just want to, I just want to uplift what Dexter was saying and really be clear that it's like, when we think about like the energy and the money and the time that we want to invest to make the outdoors equitable, like we need to make sure that it's actually reaching the people that have been excluded and uh, in the past, as opposed to trying to expect them to change their behavior. You look at how well used and well loved urban green spaces are where they in places where they do exist. And you realize that those are just like little gems for communities to have those places where, as you say, you can just go out and be in green space. It doesn't have to be birds, although birds are certainly a part of it the way that we enjoy it. But just being in a green space is is so good for you. Uh, it, it, It reduces anxiety. It reduces stress. There's a whole you know, new movement, bird, bird, mindful birding and all that stuff that's coming out now um, that people are really getting engaged in. And uh, you, you see it, you see, I think we all know it sort of intuitively when you go out and you go birding and you immediately feel things kind of slow down and your blood pressure drop and your heart rate drop and you feel a lot more comfortable. And it's, it's a the Zen experience and it's such a gift to be able to have more people experience that as well. That part that you love about it. Nailed it. That's kind of felt like I was rambling, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it it is it's pretty remarkable. There, it's I, I mentioned Milwaukee by being one of the most, if not the most, segregated city in America. Mm-hmm. There is one really cool 
place in Milwaukee is called the Havenwoods, Havenwoods State Forest. And it's literally located behind housing projects. It's so unique and so like different than what you see. And I want to give a huge shout out to this organization called Nearby Nature because they lead these, they call them healing hikes and, mm-hmm. and different things through Havenwoods on a regular basis. And they're just trying to get the, the people who live there yeah. into that forest. It's it's a great way to forest, teach people about birds. Forest bathing yeah. is real, right? Yeah. Like get it, getting out there and showing them that, hey, yep, you live here, you live in some projects, but look, you have a you have a forest. This is a state forest. This is yours, mm-hmm. right? This is your forest, and getting these people out and exploring that. And our Milwaukee club leader Rita Flores Waskowski. She's been leading, you know, when she has burning walks, we go to Havenwood. So we've also been trying to get people into this forest and especially people of color that have maybe never even been there Mm because they're afraid of the woods. A lot of people don't understand um, that connection to woods and black people and people Mm -hmm. of color in general. There's some scary stuff. And and I want to say something else right there um, in regards to forests. Right. Um, People are thinking about lynching. They're thinking about people with guns that may not like them. And they're thinking about animals that they've never seen before, never had access to. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're not if you're not used to these type of things, you're going to be afraid. People typically afraid are are afraid of the things they don't understand. Um, So if we can start breaking those those barriers down. And just like Martha said, start bringing some of that stuff to people so they get that experience. It's going to change their lives. And when you invest in something like that, talk about ROI. That's generation, yeah. right? Yeah. That's not that's not a year, two years. That That's things 10, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, generations of people will be able to benefit from that. So um, you want to spend money wisely, spend it on nature. And then they find birds and then you got them. Yes. And I say one quick thing on that last study. It's a total departure. So if it doesn't fit, feel free to cut it. Um, and that's fine with me. But I will say, like, if this is a total, it's like a methodological thing. But uh, I thought it was really, like, kind of clever and really, like, highlights the, with, with the study on urban heat island effects in particular, you'd expect that urbanization and urban heat island effects would, like, be really tightly correlated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that as a place urbanizes, you get these, more of these urban heat island effects. And so because of what Dexter was saying, because they were able to look at like over 300 cities, they were able to kind of disentangle those things because there's mm-hmm. some variance in between those things between all those cities. Um, and I thought that was like a really, it really highlights that we can get more specific about what's going on like ecologically in these cities and like what the causes of these things are by using these big data like products, which I thought was a pretty cool, I thought this was just a kind of a cool example of that. Um, because that's not something that I think would be easy to test at such a large scale. And so it was just a cool thing that they did. More data. Always good. Nerd. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. (laughs) He wears it proudly. Well, I'm here with the happy news, uh, which, um, so, uh, I'm just trying to think, I, I just like, I just psyched myself out. So let me like take a breath and then, um, That's right. and then do it. Uh, so I just wanted to like tell everyone, it's like in the last month, there was an exciting bird release that happened. Um, it's happened in New Zealand. When we were talking about like birds that went extinct mm-hmm. earlier, earlier in the, 
in the podcast. This is an example of actually bringing a bird back from almost extinction and actually having what is now possibly a viable, like a continuously viable population of them. I'm talking about the uh, South Island Takahe, which is this flightless bird in on the South Island of New Zealand. And it looks like a purple gallinule like woke up one day and said like, I want to be a professional wrestler. Yeah. Cause yeah. this thing is like enormous and purple and blue. Like it just looks like it looks, it's, it's, it's a the cartoon most, character. It is the most <laughs> aggressive looking purple gallinule I've ever seen in my life. Um, it looks like it would like, it looks like it would eat mice for lunch, but apparently oh, yeah. all it does is eat grass. Uh, so it's like this very delightful thing. But anyway, so the Takahe was thought to be extinct. Um, they thought it, they basically declared it extinct back in, in 1898 um, and then was rediscovered um, about 50 years later um, in one tiny valley in the south, uh, in the south portion of New Zealand. Um, and so researchers gathered up um, a number of the birds and they've been doing a captive breeding program for quite a while. Um, and in the last couple of months, they were able to release um, 18 individuals of this species. There are now three wild populations of Takahe in New Zealand. Um, what's really notable about this particular release is that they were releasing it back onto indigenous lands. So these are lands that are actually being stewarded um, by the indigenous Maori tribe of the South Island. Uh, and they actually spent a long time fighting to get those lands back. And now they have lived alongside the Takahe for generations. And this is the, this is now they're they're going to be living as uh, alongside these birds again. Uh, and to talk about like minimum viable population, everyone's been hoping to get to 500 mm -hmm. and they think they have 500 birds now. Wow. Let's go. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. Um, I will just reiterate the bizarreness of this bird. It is like, yeah, I, I, it was a great description. Uh, purple Galano that became a professional wrestler. Uh, purple Galano that ate a basketball also. I mean, they are yeah, just delightfully round. Yeah, yeah. very round. I, there's a quote There's a quote from one of the articles that I was reading about it that it said, this is one of the indigenous um uh, one of the indigenous leaders said they look like a model planet earth perched atop two long bright red legs yeah for sure yeah because they're green and blue yeah it's 70 percent blue i'm just like the giant Damn, red bill perfect i want to dress up as a takahe for like halloween now it's perfect it would be perfect yeah it's uh it feels like it could be human sized as well um it's just one of those weird rails um you yeah. know rails have a you know tendency to disperse in ways that are remarkable, especially across the South Pacific. There are so many bizarre flightless rails, and this might be like the king of the bizarre flightless rails. I remember when I first heard about the Takahe, um, like when I was a kid, and there couldn't have been more than a dozen of them left. I, I guess I didn't realize at the time how dire the situation was for this species. And the fact that they are almost or at 500 now there's just some really good bird conservation stories coming from New Zealand these days. Not just the Takahe, but the Kakapo. And it helps that they all have delightful names. Um, and, and like I remember reading recently the Kakapo, the big flightless parrot. Um, they're doing some reintroductions of that bird uh, on the South Island as well. Just a lot of cool stuff. New Zealand's got all kinds of amazing birds. And people are very, they're very into their endemics down there. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, yeah. you've got I mean they've got a parrot out there that like goes after cop cars. It's like, you know what? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. props yeah, yeah. to that parrot. 
Um, <laughs> Stick it to the man. <laughs> it does. It like oh, waits holy. around, like waits around for cop cars to show off, and then like strips all yeah, the rubber. Strips all the rubber. Like, yeah. That's the Kia. Yeah, the Kia. It's named after a car. Who knew? No, the car's named after. I don't, know. I don't think it is. But they have the same name. It's 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 coincidental. I I think that the stories that New Zealand, the stories that are coming out of New Zealand about protection of native birds and and you know the the very strict line they're taking on things like uh, introduced predators, in particular feral cats and even house cats, is is so heartening. You don't want to lose all those birds there. It is a, a pair of islands that had no native terrestrial mammals uh, prior to humans arriving uh, when the Maori arrived. Um, the only native mammal to New Zealand was a bat. And all the all the niches on the island were filled by bizarre birds which is just so cool and big insects which is also very cool amazing i love the fact that their only mammal wants to be a bird exactly yeah and all their birds wanted to be mammals <laughs> like i can see a tacky being essentially a, a rabbit you know running around uh eating tussock grasses and uh, yeah like yeah. gamboling about yeah so yeah. anybody that's listening i highly recommend that you find some of the videos of takahe especially like either leaving like the the little carriers that they when they do the reintroductions <laughs> or whatever it's it is truly like you want to see like an orb just like a panicked orb it's perfect yeah yeah great bird oh kiwi how can we forget I, kiwis like the ultimate boar round bird flightless bird but yeah one of my favorite videos is seeing it when they were like trying to like rehabilitate one of those kiwis and it was on a treadmill <laughs> Look for that. <laughs> just like i i mean i feel that some days like i gotta get on the treadmill too some days we're all a kiwi on a treadmill <laughs> so i was really curious if this bird had won new zealand's bird of the year because they That's have cool. that mm. and they i so i i did a deep dive so okay, for those who are familiar uh the forest and bird environmental organization runs this similar to like the aba bird of the year has a new zealand mm -hmm. bird of the year and the takahi has not won um, and this year in particular is a big year because it's not only the bird of the year, but the bird of the century because Forest and Bird has been around for coming up on 100 okay. years. Um, and so I think talking it could be like, especially with this, I, I think multiple reintroductions like could be a really great year for it. I think it has a good campaign to run on. Yeah. Um, I did find that like there's a history of uh, this, the runnings, I guess, or these elections being fraught with controversy. We've talked to which in 2008, there was a small contingent of Takahi voters who accused the Kakapo of accepting undeclared donations from, and I quote, <laughs> wealthy migratory birds living in Monaco. That was later cleared by the fictional serious feathered fraud office. Yeah. So I think it has, I don't know. I'm glad they're taking this as seriously as they should. I think that we need to organize an astroturfing campaign. I agree. For Takahe? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So in this next year, we're just like going to gather everyone up uh, that's listening to this podcast and be yep. like, vote for the Takahe. All four New Zealand listeners that I undoubtedly have, please <laughs> get in touch. We will, we will put the full might of the American Birding Association behind we, the Takahe uh, as bird of the century. What we call it a mini pack? Yeah. Mini right. tech, mini tech. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So I guess fall migration is coming to a close. Um, one thing that we know scientifically is that the vast majority of birds migrate at night. Um, but the way that we often experience migration is in mornings, right? We mm -hmm. like go out and see the aftermath of what just happened the night before. Um, but to study migration, we often need to focus on that nighttime activity. 
And a buddy of mine here in Colorado, Jacob Job, has been putting together this really fantastic podcast um, on the series, a series that's focused on the nighttime bird surveillance network. And this is a, a group of folks who are working on this and studying birds as they migrate at night. Um, and so this past month, he aired in episodes. They're short. They're like 12-minute uh, episodes. Um, and he's focused specifically on nocturnal flight calls. And so he kind of frames this as this new frontier of understanding bird migration. Um, he talks about kind of the difficulty in identifying them because they're always really short or generally pretty short. And then he talks about this community that's developed around that challenge and how we've kind of crowdsourced like figuring out these nocturnal flight calls. Um, and then ultimately how a lot of that science is being used to kind of figure out where birds from to a species level, like where birds are flying and what, when they're flying over, where they're going, all that kinds of stuff. Um, so the episode includes a lot of really good information on how to get involved if you want to get, you know, if you want to start listening to recording flight calls and start identifying them. Um, but my broader pitch is just that, you know, for the past two years, I've been doing research on nocturnal migration, and that's made me go out at night and collect data. And I can't, like, really say enough how much it's changed the way I think about migration. Like, being out at night and listening to the flight, the calls uh, overhead and um, just kind of, yeah, being out there, like, while it's all happening, you just kind of realize there's this whole ecosystem moving over your head, and it's not just birds. There's, like, insects flying over. Um, I had this really cool experience this past fall when I saw, I like, I didn't really know what it looked like. Glass was, like, moving over me. I came to realize it was a bunch of spider webs, and I realized, like, spiders are ballooning over me for, like, an hour. Like, there's so <laughs> many of them. Um, and there's this whole... Just like there's this whole ecosystem moving over our heads and it's it's not just birds, but birds are obviously a big part of it for birders. Um, and so go listen to the podcast. I think Jacob really captured a lot of that magic. He's, he's like really into obviously the recording of the nocturnal kind of flight call and that whole ecosystem. Um, so the sound is fantastic, but I also think the narrative he tells is really well done. But also just this upcoming spring, get out there. You're even like on these kind of closing nights of fall migration get out there if you can if it's you're you have a place where you can go get out and listen to it um just kind of stare up at it i think it's a really cool way to interact with migration in a way that i hadn't done before at least so i have something of a revelation i suppose and i and i, and I hesitate to say it here but i guess i guess we're among friends i've never been able to hear migrating birds overhead at night i don't know whether i have like a mental block i think it, i do think it's one of those things that once i know what to listen for i would probably recognize them better but i've never really been able to like when people will say oh it was a big night i went outside and heard you know thrushes and cuckoos and whatever flying over i've never been able to hear that so what am i doing wrong miko I have no, I like, I could <laughs> no, hear it for a long time. I can't help you. I was, something you know, must be wrong with you. No, no, no. no. I don't think it's you. Um, it's just funny. It probably I, is me, honestly. I think it maybe takes a while to get used to. So actually, this is that funny because be. a lot of my, my technicians, like my research techs who come out with me, you know, they don't go out as often one and they're only there for usually a season. Yeah, and that could be it. I think it takes them a while to like, if they do at all, to to like hear it. Um, can I have to die? I don't think it yeah. wasn't something that like, it was like one night where I know I remember it was a really big night and I like heard kind of a lot of them. Yeah. And then now maybe I think it's you're right. It's like something that you kind of listen, you learn to dial in on. Yeah. And then you can kind of hear it. Um, it's faint. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like you're hearing, you know, like a call right over your head. So it's faint. OK. But yeah, that's probably what I'm doing wrong. 
And there's a lot of ambient noise actually during the during the night. We think like, oh, it's silent outside at night. And it's yeah. like, no, there's like there's like frogs and oh, I have so many frogs stuff. in my neighborhood. I think that might be part of the problem. You know? And it's like it's all mostly on the same frequency as all these flight calls, yeah. these little chips that the birds do. It's like it could be really hard. So I think that it partially is just a filtering problem. Yeah. That you're like you're not used to filtering that information out the same way we are during the day because we can yeah. hear the most distant. Right. Oh, yes, I can hear because I'm very good at picking things. In, exactly. Day, like, it's not like my hearing is bad. Like, I, yeah. I can pick up birds that are distant and, and recognize them and identify them. It's just that like, flight calls have always been sort of a, a black box for me. Like, I have not been able to. But now that you mention it, I think it might be the fact that I have a retention pond behind my house and there are like five species of frogs yelling oh, their heads off most nights in the yeah, early tree spring. frogs and peepers so, are just like absolutely yeah, not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all the chorus <laughs> frogs and cricket frogs and narrow mouth toads and all that stuff. <laughs> One thing I might suggest, this, of course, requires selling a kidney. So, okay, fair enough. Your kidneys. Yeah, um, but uh, so my friend Shannon, um, who's a, a, a urban ecologist and avian ecologist uh, in Staten Island, she got a hold of one of those Zeiss night yeah. vision cameras okay. and set it up and has been taking videos and photos. Um, and you can see the birds just going overhead, just like bam, 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 bam. There's like hundreds right. of them. And there's also Tim, uh, a, Tim Healy's another birder yeah, yeah, in yeah. New York City. He also has one. Um, they're expensive. I was like, oh, maybe I can buy one. I'm like, okay, I maybe I can't yeah. buy one. Yeah. But um, you, maybe you could like get one to borrow yeah. and be able to see the birds and then correlate. Like I saw that fly over and I heard a thing. Yep. Um, so if anyone out there wants to try and maybe see the birds <laughs> as blobs, yeah. um, no, I like it. Yeah. It's another way. To balls, balls in your court size. I'm, uh, I'm available. You know, you know how to read me. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to go old school, you could moon watch, set up your I see. I have done that. Yeah. And, yeah. um, I have done that and I have seen birds fly past, um, past the moon on a full moon night. Uh, it's, uh, it's hard to do because you don't really yeah. realize when you set your scope up aiming at the moon, how bright the moon is and how tired that can make your eye. It's like, it's hard to like sit there and stare at it for a long period of time, but you can see like birds zip across really quickly. I don't think I could identify any of them, but there are definitely birds moving past. Yeah. I've done that. Mika, when you're out there, I know you do a lot of like looking at radar and stuff like that, but do you have like a parabolic, um, like a microphone or whatever? Do you, do you actually go out and record some of the calls? Cause that might be another way. Um, to be able to like get the calls in and then listen to them and be able to then interact yeah. later. No, I don't. And part of that is because I actually have a, so the radar that I'm using is like running on a generator, which like, it's just like slow humming in the background. Yeah. And it's like a nightmare for recording. Mm, I, honestly, yeah. to hear the birds, I have to like walk pretty far from the truck, like from the whole setup that I have. Um, and like I walk down a hill, it's this whole thing, but like. <laughs> I'm not kind of in the best place. I guess I could set up a recorder like farther from the truck. That's, like a little flower a pot. Idea. Yeah. Yeah. Flower pot or yeah, exactly. It's a good idea. I haven't really thought about it much. I would say, so in my experience, owling is how mm. I've been able to, to actually hear and see like birds migrating at night. So the oh, last really? few okay. years I've been lucky to do the North, do Northern Sawwet owl, uh, owl banding. Oh yeah, that's cool. So when we're out and we're banding Sawwets and their peak migration is over this next week. So I'm pretty mm-hmm. excited. I'm going to be heading up North pretty soon to, to do that again, but you're out at night and you're out from mm-hmm probably 9 30 10 o'clock until 1 32 in the morning sometimes um as they're coming through so seeing those saw wets come in 
that's pretty mind blowing, right? Like yeah. just seeing, you know, sometimes we've had them in, in pretty large numbers. So um, if you have an opportunity to do some owling with some, maybe some master banders or, or something like that, that could be an opportunity to pick up on some fall migration stuff too. Anything that like gets you out at the right time of night, I guess, is going yep. to in, cause you to intersect with those. That's that's the point. Yep. All right. Well, I'll take your um, suggestions into consideration. I will try to do better. Um, I also live near an airport, which I suppose doesn't really help all that much. It's not a very busy airport, but it is an airport nonetheless. It's uh, It's Halloween next week, soon, soon enough. Um, I, when we've done... October this month's in birding, this this month's in birding, this month in birdings. I'm not exactly sure what the plural of that is. But um we I have I've frequently asked um, you know, what is your best bird Halloween costume? So feel free to tackle that question if you'd like. Um I've probably told my own story at least twice on this podcast, which is why I switched to a different uh, way. But it is it is a time of year for spooky happenings. A lot of people in my neighborhood have uh, various skeletal figures erected on their front lawns in, um, in preparation for the, the night next week when the kids come around. Um, but I want to know if you what would be the what would be the spookiest bird? And you don't have to stay in the ABA area. You can go far beyond the ABA area. The spookiest bird to terrify young young children uh, on your lawn for Halloween. The floor is open. <laughs> uh, I like that little twist to the question. Yeah. Yeah. What is what I, is Halloween if not an opportunity to terrify uh, elementary I have schools? one. All right. That comes to mind. Yeah. The potu. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So not only is it a master camouflage, mm -hmm. right? So the the... The, the kids are not going to see it coming, nope. which is that's going to be amazing. They're nocturnal hunters. Right. And they have like this huge, ridiculously big mouth mm -hmm. that is so scary looking. Right. <laughs> it's and then, weird. <laughs> just imagine this all of a sudden you see that and it's in its cryptic plumage you, and it just creeps up on you and it opens up his big old mouth. I think the kids would be done. Yeah. Well, we I all think uh, be done. Dexter, you have kids, so like you've taken them out trick or treating in the neighborhood, yep. no doubt. We all know the uh, the guy who sits at the end of his driveway, acting like he's a like a stuffed scarecrow or whatever. And yep. then when the kids come by, he stands up and, and terrifies them and gives them candy. Yeah, the potu would do that. Exactly, exactly. That's the first thing that came to my mind when you said potu. Either great or common or whichever. When you look at it. They have the weirdest eyes, too. Yeah, the they're, big, they're kind of terrifying eyes. looking. Yeah. And it's so funny. I still want to see it, obviously. They don't see always do a lot when you see one. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've seen them a few occasions, mostly as a... Um, Mostly acting like a stick, like you. Yeah, like, hanging out on the top of a on the top of a, pole. a broken so off, their, broken off. But trunk, their vocalizations yeah. are also super creepy. It's exactly right, which also made it a great. That was uh, the next great step. Is like you know how the kid walks by and then all of a sudden the spooky sounds go off at this the houses and stuff like that. You start hearing that though. I mean, their calls are ridiculously scary. You mm -hmm. know, the haunt, like very haunting wails and just like. Just, just terrifying. So, yeah, um, I'd have to go with the po too. Good call. Okay, I'm gonna answer both questions. Yes, go for it. Costume and the decoration. Love it. Yes, uh, because I feel like I have a good costume this year. Um, Great. My fiance and I are doing bird costumes slash celebrities. So I'm okay. Uh, David Spotted Tohi. 
So like David Bowie, but also a spotted Joey. I'm really into nerdy. And then she is going to be uh, Ziggy Stardust. Say, wait, says Phoebe Bridger. Wait, yeah, says Phoebe Bridger. Yeah. Um, and then I've never seen. Wait, it, how does apparent, one dress as Phoebe Bridger? Just um, just wear the the skeleton costume with okay. like a small peaked head and stuff like that. Um. And then decorations. Uh, I've never seen it, but apparently, black belt magpies do uh, have um, funerals for like other dead individuals. Oh, yeah, very good. Yep. So yep. this is kind of cheating. It wouldn't be one bird, but seeing would have a to bunch be. No, of no. magpies uh, uh, while you're trick or treating, kind of around another dead magpie, <laughs> it would look like something, some kind of ritual is going on. And, oh, yeah, uh, I like it. Creepy one. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, it's like that video that showed up a few years ago of all those tur- turkeys like circling in that's the right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Corvids have a long Halloween history. Edgar Allan Poe loved them. Uh, everyone thinks of crows and ravens when they think of like kind of scary situations. I'm glad that you went slightly off and went to magpies, which I think are underrepresented in the Halloween canon. Yeah, no doubt. Agreed. Yeah, so I'm going to go like the more, I love that, Miko, by the way. So I'm going to go the more direct route, and I'm just going to say like a Canada goose with a knife strapped <laughs> to its wing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely protecting its territory. Oh, like, yeah. no, it's like those kids would be running so, because the thing hisses. It hisses, like, exactly, exactly. You're going to give the kid like a donut or something. The, the goose is going to want that donut and it's just going to be like, absolutely nothing is going to stop the Canada goose. The other thing that's great about that is like, they're used to seeing Canada geese. But like that one with the knife. That one with the knife. Back, right? No. Yeah. <laughs> I Just love that. Dress it up as a ninja, though. Yeah. 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 You know, we are. They have the black chickens. mask. Yeah. So have the knife on the back with the little ninja outfit. I mm-hmm. think you got a winner, Martha. Yeah. That's good. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. All right. So uh, I was thinking about this uh, this afternoon. And as far as terrifying birds, uh, for me, I'm going to go with the the one bird that is purportedly, has purportedly, the one extant bird, I should say, um, killed and eaten, well, just eaten, uh, a live uh, human. And that is uh, one of the giant petrels of the Southern Oceans. There's a Whoa! story that Greg Neese told me um, about a, an Antarctic researcher who was out walking around and fell apparently off a cliff and injured himself at the bottom uh, and was not found for a long time until a few days later when um, when his uh, colleagues happened upon him. And there was evidence that the uh, that the giant petrels had found him before his colleagues had. And I don't know if you've seen the photos of giant petrels with like having stuck their entire face into an elephant seal carcass and they're just like covered in viscera and gore. Um, terrifying. Legitimately terrifying. I cannot think of anything I would be more scared to see if I were at the bottom of a cliff with a broken leg than a slowly uh, circling flock of southern giant petrels. Yeah, that's pretty grim. It's grim. Yeah. How many of us have seen like I've I watched a uh, a great blackback gull go after a uh, 
a Merg answer like that as well. So I don't know if anyone else is, you know, so I'm not, I don't trust the, I don't, I don't, just because I'm not in Antarctica, doesn't mean <laughs> I do not trust our local gulls. Yeah. They would go for me for sure. Yeah. The, the, I mean, I, I think that they absolutely would. Um, the, the giant petrel has a little bit of heft. Uh, when it comes to it, uh, you know, two or three times bigger than a great blackback gull, which itself is a, an impressive bird. Uh, but if great blackback gull were any larger than it is, I think that humans would be, uh, be under threat daily. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> what about what about a supersized uh, red winged blackbird? Uh, any supersized bird <laughs> immediately puts me in mind of their dinosaurian ancestors. And it would be. Yeah, it would be it would be bad. No, be nothing bad. good would happen from that. Yeah, it's really good that they're mostly small. It is. We are fortunate to live in a world <laughs> where birds are mostly small. <laughs> All the birds out there, we love you. <laughs> I will say that I went to the science center in my town here the other day um, with my kids, with my family, and they have cassowaries there um which is cool because I, you don't get to see cassowaries in zoos all that often they're not a super common bird and um uh, they actually look pretty friendly you know the the docent there was very interested in talking about how they're also called murder birds which i'm like that's just bad press guy uh but they um but yeah they they looked pretty friendly i would i would hang out with a with a cassowary they don't scare me not like a giant petrel i like that actually yeah, yeah. petrels for some reason i don't know they definitely have the uh they definitely have carnage on their minds. I will, um, I will post a link to a especially uh, gory photo of a giant petrel in the comments. Uh, make sure that you have a look. Or don't if you don't uh, want to have them haunting your nightmares for the foreseeable future. <laughs> 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 yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to dress up as a Takahe, but man, now I think maybe... Like, there you go. You know, With like the, the head of an uh, elephant seal. You have to carry it around. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going like, to put it on my shoulder. It'll be exactly. great. Exactly. We're, we're here at the end of the episode. I want to thank uh, Martha, Miko, and Dexter once again for your thoughts. It's, it's increasingly difficult to find where people are on social media these days, but I'll, I'll do my best to provide links to these fine people uh, wherever you want to find them. Uh, thanks to all three of you. Have a great tail end of fall migration and happy Halloween to all three of you. Thank you and happy Halloween to you. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks for having me, Nate. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is, as always, to join the ABA. Not only do you get to support community projects like the American Birding Podcast, but membership gets a lot of great benefits, including magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press and Cornell Lab of Ornithology. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Marshall Dahl of Vancouver, British Columbia, John DePaul of Northville, Michigan, Nancy Fortino of Dresher, Pennsylvania, Gregory Miller of Bel Air, Maryland, and Sarah Vogel of Chicago, Illinois, all of whom recently joined the American Birding Association and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much and welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of this podcast is Wayne Klockner, who thinks that the scariest bird species is, without a doubt, Jason Horncreeps from the Friday the 13th episode of Extraordinary Birder. Technical production is by John Lowry, who couldn't sleep after dreaming of a murderous nightjar doll, a Chucky Wills widow. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, who are arguing about who would win in a fight between Freddie Yeager and Rennie Wise. 
They never came to any conclusion. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nitzwick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. See you next week.